so thankful to be here with you guys at St. Paul's Church. And, um, you know, we've been in the area for, uh, since 2011, it'll be seven years this August, but the first time, and I've known Keith, I've known Ryan, I knew Vince, um, and this is the first time I've known, gotten to be here with you guys, and it's a real privilege, so thank you for the opportunity. I pray you're encouraged in, in God's Word and just in our time together. So, uh, with that, let's, uh, let's hit the ground running. Acts 17 is where we are today. Acts 17, going to be in verses 16 to 34. Paul makes his way into Athens and uh, has an encounter with some intellectuals there. And so Paul, he's kind of, I don't know, any baseball fans here? I've got a few. You guys heard of uh, Pat Venditti? He is a unique pitcher in that he can pitch with either arm equally well. So, you know, one batter will get up there, he'll throw right arm, 90 miles an hour, just amazing. Another batter comes up, he switches, he has a six-handed, six-fingered glove. So he can switch the glove onto either hand, and then he'll pitch, throw a 90 miles an hour. Pretty impressive. Well, Paul is the Pat Venditti of the uh, preaching world. I mean, that brother, he has skills on the one hand, throwing gospel strikes over here to the, Jew, to the Jewish folk in the synagogue, and then he goes into the marketplace and does equally well talking to the intellectuals and those that he finds uh, in the Agora in the marketplace in Athens. So um, this is Paul. That's, that's what he does. And so he comes into Athens, the city of Athens, at a time uh, that's called kind of the, the late afternoon of the glory of Athens. So they've had their heyday. And I mean, they've had some pretty impressive people come through. Names that I think we would recognize, like Socrates, for example. Socrates, if you like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, um, right? Uh, Plato, Aristotle, uh, some of you are like, I've never heard of that. Uh, Netflix, man, it's on there, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so, so Socrates, Herodotus, Thucydides, who were great historians. Um, there were men like... Uh, um, Hippocrates, the father of Western medicine. Um, you've heard of the Hippocratic Oath, right? All these guys, Athens. So, I mean, they were a cultural hub in terms of democracy, in terms of philosophy, the arts, um, great architecture there that still remains that you can go see. And so Paul walks into this city. That's the setting he comes into. And, um, and so he, he's coming in in Athens. And, and right there, to the, there's the Parthenon, um, uh, next, and then next to the Parthenon is a hill about 50 feet tall and 150 feet long. And on top of that sits, uh, sits Mars Hill or the Areopagus, depending on if you're Greek or Roman, right? It's named after the Greek god of war um, or the Roman god of war, Mars. Um, and so there, the Areopagus. And so that's probably the location where Paul's sermon was in verses 22 to 31 that we're going to look at. But more stunning then all the architecture and the beauty of the city is just Paul's sermon that he preached here. Really impressive, really uh, um, stunning way that Paul addresses the intellectual elites of his day and in, the middle of their ter- and in the middle of their territory. And so I can't help but wonder, what can we glean? If Paul is so adept, if he's the, the Pat Van Ditty, right, of, uh, of the preaching world, of sharing the gospel, if he's the uh, ambidextrous evangelist, as it were, um, what can we glean and learn in the way that we want to uh, share the gospel in this community that we find ourselves in, uh, in, in the shadow of Yukon and Eastern and um, here in Eastern Connecticut? How, do we, how should we think about sharing the gospel in the culture and setting that we, we find ourselves in? And so uh, John Stott has said that we do not speak like Paul because we do not feel like Paul. 
And this is because we do not see like Paul. We don't speak like Paul because we don't feel like Paul. It's because we don't see like Paul. And so we're going to look at um, four things from this text. First, what Paul saw, then what he felt, then where he went, and finally, what he said. So those are our four points. You know, the outline looks intimidating. Have no fear, all right? Um, just those four things are what we're going to look at. And so you guys are going to be impressed with my uh, master of divinity that was brought up in the introduction. Um, what did Paul see? Verse 16, right? Um, it starts with Paul. He, he comes in and it says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them, talking about the other apostles, waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So again, be... be uh, be ready to be impressed with my biblical acumen here and my ability to parse what the, what the word says. What did Paul see? Idols, right? Um, yeah, he saw idols there. The, that, that, that's what he saw. And, um, and in fact, some describe Athens as being smothered in idols. So everywhere that you go, they're all over the place. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, first, welcome. I'm so glad you're here today. We're so glad uh, that you're here. And, and, and so the thing you need to know about being a Christian is that it's not that you, you know, if you become a Christian, you add a couple of good things. I'm going to add some Bible reading and some prayer and some church attendance. And you're, it's not just adding a few things. Rosaria Butterfield, uh, who was a um, professor at Syracuse University in LGBT studies, when she came to faith in Christ, she said it was more like an explosion in her life that everything changed, her whole perspective changed, that she had a new understanding, saw everything differently, and man, it was hard, but it was also beautiful because she was headed in the right direction. That's what Christianity can be like when you come to faith. Um, to, it's like an explosion that completely reorients your life. And so Paul is coming into this beautiful city. He sees all the architecture. He sees everything there. And yet, what is it that provokes him? It's all the idols, it's that it's rampant. It's everywhere. And listen, guys, we can make idols out of anything, right? I think it was John Calvin that said our hearts are idol factories. We're just looking for something to worship. And it can be any kind of good thing. And an idol is just anything we look to to give us what only Jesus can give us. That's what an idol is. Anything that we look to to give us what only Jesus can give us. And so uh, that's why you and I as Christians, you who are Christians, we, we look at arts and sports and money and vocation, and we see these things just differently. We don't look at them in the same way because they are not ends in themselves, right? To us, these are ways that we can glorify God. We can glorify God through sports, how we save and spend our money, how we work, um, the way that we view family, right? It just changes everything when we come to saving faith in Jesus. All of life differently, and for Paul... Um, he, he's coming in, and, you know, for the Christian, we see life through this orientation of the whole storyline of the Bible, of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. God made it all, we broke it all, but praise God, he sent Jesus to fix it all, and one day all things will be made new, right? This is the storyline of the Bible. We see all the world through this. And so, uh, so Paul, he comes in, and he sees all the rampant idolatry, and, and it broke his heart. It broke his heart. This is, and so look, this is the second thing we're going to see. This is what Paul felt. It says, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he was provoked, right? It provoked something in him. It's one thing to see the world for how it is. It's another thing, though, friends, to be burdened by what we see, by the brokenness of the world around us, Right? Paul is a great missionary here, not just because he sees what's really happening, but because he feels deeply 
right? Because he feels deeply about what he sees and the impact that it's having on real people around him. He, he was like Jesus, right? Jesus was a deeply feeling person. You see Jesus, um, for example, uh, at times angry, right? Turning over the, the tables in the temple. You see Jesus full of compassion, weeping at the death of his friend Lazarus. You see Jesus having compassion over a whole city because they're like sheep without a shepherd. So, so Jesus was, was a feeling man, feeling person, and Paul has that same kind of heart for people. He was like Jesus, Jesus and Paul, full of compassion, and you won't act like Paul acted if you don't see what Paul saw and feel what Paul feels. When we look around in the community around us and see, man, people are chasing after all kinds of things to satisfy them, aren't they? Everywhere you look, things that could never bear that burden, that were never meant to bear a burden, right? Our jobs were never meant to be the main point of our life, and yet we can get so wrapped up in making jobs the main uh, the main aspect of who we are, or our family, as good as family is, right? These are good things, but man, never meant to bear the burden of the weight of our soul and our main identity. And so Paul feels the brokenness. He sees everyone running around after these false idols that were, could never satisfy their heart. And so he's burdened, and because he's burdened, he has to speak, he has to act. Now, it's tough to understand the word provoke here, how he's provoked, um, but, but it carries kind of two ideas with it. Um, that word provoked, on the one hand, it does mean that he's angry about it. He sees that God is not getting the worship he deserves, and it angers his heart. He's provoked, but it, there's another sense to that word there. Um, it, it's captured in Isaiah 65 um, when God sees the idolatry of his people. In Isaiah 65, God says of his people, I spread out my hands all day to a rebellious people, and they provoked me by running after another. Right? It's, you see God as the one who is being cheated on. Right? So often, idolatry is talked about as being like adultery um, in the Old Testament. And that's what Paul is, is what God feels like when we run after things for satisfaction. It's what Paul is feeling as he sees this rampant idolatry um, in Athens broken heart and yet also a passion for truth. And, and it's interesting because I think we really need that balance of both sides of that. Uh, because you guys have seen and heard about guys who are, who are just easily provoked, who, are ang- who have the truth, and they're angry about it, right? You, I don't know if you heard about those guys come over at UConn that'll stand there and like just yelling at people. God hates you, you're going to hell, right? This kind of thing. This is the message they hear over, right? That's obnoxious. Right? Can we agree on that? That's obnoxious. That's an obnoxious approach to evangelism. The flip side of that, though, is that we can be so um, emphasizing grace. Oh, God loves you just the way you are. That we never get to the point that, yes, he loves us the way we are, but he doesn't want us to stay there. Right? That he wants to make us more into the image of Jesus. And so in that sense, we can overemphasize that compassion side and end up being a coward as as an evangelist. And so what's ineffective as an evangelist? Being obnoxious. The other thing that being, uh, that's ineffective, being a coward, right? And we don't want either of those. We need both. We need this passion of holding the line of the truth of God's word, of who Jesus is, of what he's calling us to be, that we want to grow more like him. But we also remember we are people in process, that none of us are where we ought to be, right? Myself, chief of sinners here. We, none of us are where we ought to be. And we want to pursue both aspects of that. Um, Jesus' first word in his first sermon was the word repent. But again, 
Um, he, he was brokenhearted by the lostness that he saw, the idolatry in people's hearts. And so, um, so this is just uh, having the heart of Jesus as an evangelist. We want to be both, on the one hand, as we share the gospel, man, passionate about God's word and what it says, but also compassionate for those that we are talking to, both sides of it. And so, uh, so Paul sees this. He enters into uh, then uh, to, to two specific places. Where did Paul go? So we, here's what Paul saw. He saw the idols. Here's what he felt. Man, he was provoked, um, but he had this uh, anger, passion for the truth, but also compassion for people. And then where did he go? Verse 17 tells us where he went. It says, he started reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. And in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. So he's going in both to the synagogue and then to the marketplace. Now, here's why, so you can tell why Paul is not just angry about the idols, right? Otherwise, he would have just gotten a sledgehammer. It would have been like whack-a-mole in Athens, like whack an idol, right? Just going around crushing all these idols all over the place. But that's not what he does. Instead, what does he do? Because he loves people, he goes to people. He's reasoning with them. He's talking with them. He's making sound arguments based on their culture, right, as we're going to see in just a minute, and, uh, and their background. And so Paul goes in first to the synagogue, reasoning with the Jews, telling the Jewish people he's the Messiah. We just sang about it. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior. He's the one we've been waiting for. And then he goes, it says, to the marketplace, to the Agora. Now, the Agora was not just, uh, not just a mall, right, not just a shopping center. The Agora was a place where people would come to practice their crafts. And so there would be artists working. There would be philosophers standing up, um, teaching anyone who would listen, right? They didn't have the internet machine. They didn't have the Google, right? So they had to go there, and they're learning, gleaning from these philosophers like Socrates, Aristotle, Plato, um, as they're there. And so they're just learning and gleaning and, and what's new and, and, uh, and, and this kind of thing. And so debates are happening, and Paul goes right in um, to the fray and just starts chopping it up right with them right? Asking questions. Again, John Stott said that Paul went into Athens, into Socrates' city, and, uh, and started uh, using Socrates' method um, as he was talking with them. And so that's what he's doing, just asking questions, talking, learning. And so in Athens, it's interesting to note that he had both, on the one hand, a synagogue ministry, so a ministry to religious people, but then he also had a marketplace ministry to people who had no knowledge of Jesus in the Bible, and there are parts in, the, in America I think you can go to. Uh, my dad's a pastor in Tennessee, and in his town, you can go up to just about anybody in the town and ask them, hey, are you a Christian? They, oh, yeah, I've been a Christian my whole life, right? Um, grew up in the church. My daddy's a preacher. Uh, you get that whole kind of uh, uh, background with them on the one hand. But I think here in New England, we're more of kind of that marketplace um, kind of atmosphere, don't you think? Uh, I, I remember when we first got here in 2011, there was this guy, I know I'm talking fast, I'm sorry. A, I'm nervous because it's a new place, and B, I'm excited because I love this passage and, uh, and, and everything. So, um, so, but I remember when we first got here, there was this, we were doing a community survey in the area, and, uh, and we were going around, and one of the questions on it was, what would you tell a new pastor of a church in the area? And this one guy, no lie, he was like, first he was like, oh, I don't want to answer your survey. And so then they went down the street, and then he chased them down the street, Chase them down to tell them this. Here's what you tell that new pastor. Just tell him to go home. Uh, he said, we're, we're well-educated. We have everything we need. We have money. We don't need whatever it is he thinks he has to give us. Just tell him to go home. And right, that's obviously not everybody here. All right, here you guys are. 
Um, and so that's not everybody here, but I think we're in kind of that marketplace kind of area where people don't have an understanding of why in the world would I need Jesus? I have everything in my life that I need, right? And so here is Paul going into that kind of place, talking to, in particular, Epicureans and Stoics. Now, Epicureans and Stoics are, um, are, were philosophers that held the kind of, these were the two predominant intellectual views of their day. The Epicureans had this view of God that, really, of gods, that their hands were off, that they were up in the celestial realm, enjoying food, enjoying drink. Um, I don't, who cares what, uh, what, what, what these uh, peons down on the earth are doing? They're having a good time, right? And so Epicureans were like, we're going to adopt that same lifestyle. So do what you want, enjoy what you want. Um, you don't have to worry about judgment. That was the Epicureans. The flip side were the Stoics, and the Stoics were like, um, we believe, no, there is a natural order and progression to everything. Life is all cyclical, and the way you connect with the natural order is through logic and reason. So think Spock, right, from Star Trek. Logic and reason, this is how you connect with everything in the world. And so they don't care about, you know, the the comforts of life. Um, They're going to reason what's most logical in any given moment. So these are the two that Paul encounters in, um, in Athens, all right? And so as he's talking with them, uh, you know, I think, you know, we, we see even those kind of mentalities in our day. In particular, I think probably the Epicureans would be more a mindset of the day. Eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow you're plant food, right? Uh, so enjoy life now while you got it and make the most of it. I think that's probably the predominant um, thing that we see. And uh, the reaction to him is that they call him a babbler, He's just going on. He's a babbler. And the word imagery is actually of, of like a bird pecking at seeds. And they're saying, he's, Paul, you're just like a, you're like a bird. You're just pecking like a chicken, pecking uh, seeds on the ground and spitting them back out. Um, you're picking up these new philosophies and spitting them out at us. And um, they're like, we, we, we think you're just a babbler, right? Not, not very complimentary. Um, and, and they totally miss what he's saying. See, in verse 19, they say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities uh, because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they think that resurrection is like a deity. So Jesus is one deity, the resurrection is another deity. So that's what they think Paul is preaching here. And, um, and, and so, so they, they hear him, they say, okay, Paul, come spit your new ideas to us. We'll let you know what we think. And it's clear that they don't understand him. But they're intrigued enough to say, you know what, let's go on up to the Areopagus, to Mars Hill. Tell us this new teaching. And so verse 19, I'm going to read a couple of verses here. It says, and they took him, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. I mean, is that not our day, right? Man, just something relevant, something new, something innovative that we want um, to to fall on our ears. That's a picture of our day. I think as Christians, we do want to understand and communicate the old, old story in fresh ways, right? We we want to do that. We want to be able to communicate um, to a Netflix, YouTube culture, what, why Jesus is relevant. We, we want to be able to do that. At the same time, what we have as Christians is an old, old story. Not, not that it's new, but it can make us new, right? That's the nature of the gospel. That's what we're passionate about. Um, the same, on the one hand, the church wants to, to present in new ways, but on the other hand, we have nothing new to offer this world. 
We have the same thing, Jesus, him crucified, his blood for our sins, washing us, making us new. And so, uh, so that's what we need to know about where he went. Um, Paul goes in and that. And so let me read. I just want to read uh, for us the whole sermon um, that Paul preaches as we quickly get to it here. Um, Acts 17, starting in verse 22. So here's the whole sermon. And now keep in mind, I think uh, the commentators are right. We're not getting the whole picture of Paul's complete sermon to them. Uh, because remember, these, these conversations um, at the Acropolis would have, would have taken, uh, would have, or at the Areopagus would have taken like three hours. And look, nothing would leave a worse impression than a guest preacher coming in and going on for three hours about what Paul said. So I'm not going to do that. I care about you guys too much for that, all right? All right, verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring... We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said... We will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them also were Dionysius the the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So that's, that's Paul's sermon. We've been preaching Peter for the last like two months at the Bridge Church, and I've finally gotten to the point of saying Peter, and now I've got to say Paul. Um, Paul... Paul is here, and so he starts uh, just by drawing attention to what's already right around them. He sees all the idols. There's even an idol over there that says, to the unknown God. They got all these idols, and there's one to the unknown God. And he was like, no, I know him. I know who that is. I know who the the one that you don't know, the one that you are missing out on, who who makes the most sense, who brings everything together. I'm going to tell you about him. And so he brings it up. Now, in other sermons where Paul is in the synagogue, he starts with the Bible. But here, with the intellectuals who don't have a background in the Bible, what does he do? He, he finds common ground, right? He finds something uh, to unpack um, right around where they are. And he goes to unpack from this that, that God is knowable. He does care about daily life. He's not like the Epicurean gods who are sitting back uncaring, right? He's not like the God of the Stoic that it's all about logic and reason, um, although God is completely logical and reasonable. Um, instead... He's knowable. 
And he's going to move then in his sermon from creation all the way to judgment. You know, and, and again, this is kind of an outline of what Paul said. So, so bear that in mind of, man, I wish you had said this, or I wish you left this out. This is kind of an outline of probably a three-hour talk that Paul gave. And so the first truth that we can see in here is that he sets up a framework for them to understand Jesus. And he begins with creation. That God made everything. Verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Again, that flew in the face of the Stoics and the Epicureans there. Um, God is not involved in creation. Oh, yes, he is. Right? He made everything. He made all of it. He's so involved that your heart is beating because he's sustaining you. That's Colossians 1. Creation is the theater of God's glory. All that he made puts on display who he is and what he's like. You want to know what God is like? Man, study biology. Study how he's made cells, right? How he makes things grow. Uh, And we understand this comes from the heart and the mind of God. Um, So you study, you see in creation all around you who God is. You can lift up your eyes and see and know what he's like. He's not confined to a building. We can't contain God in a box, right? He's created all of it. He's bigger. Um, Whatever our biggest thinking, our biggest thoughts of who God is and what he's like, man, that's still nothing in comparison to the reality of who our God is. So, uh, so, so, so he's answering the question, where, where, did all, where did everything come from, right? That's where he starts. You guys familiar with the whole farm-to-table restaurant, right? A lot of that I, I, I'm in favor of. We ought to know where our food comes from, right? I think that's a good thing. Um, how in the world? We're so used to, like, nice, neat little packages of food, and it's like, I don't know how this got here. Um, I just pick it up in the store. Uh, no, so I, so I like that, but I think some people take it a little far, right? That you're like, no, I want to see the chicken coop where this one came from, right? I want, what's his name? I think it's a little far. Um, but so Paul's answering the question, though, where did everything come from? God made it all. God made it all. That's what he's asking. He's pointing to God as the beginner of everything else. Second point, he's the sustainer, not just the creator, but the sustainer. He says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Now, that's a humbling verse, isn't it? To think about, I think one of the hardest things to hear from somebody is, I don't need you, right? I don't know if your kids have ever said that. I don't think our kids have said that yet. They're not teenagers, though, so who knows. But um, yeah, I don't need you. And yet, so, so on the one hand, that's very humbling. Um, but what it tells us is that God is self-sufficient. He's self-sufficient. We are insufficient, right? We, we can't do what he does. Um, he directs us. He's the great I am. He needs nothing. He does not need to be served by anything or anyone. And yet, here's the good news for us today. As A.W. Tozer said, though he needs none of us, he can use anyone. Right? He's willing to use us for his glory, to play in the worship band, right? to, to be a greeter, to do all the things you do as a church here. God uses you to point other people to his glory. And so that's the beautiful thing. Though he need, doesn't need us, yet he still uses us. Um, th- this isn't saying that God doesn't love humanity or care about us. No, instead, again, Colossians 1 tells us Jesus is sustaining everything without our help. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Thirdly, Paul says, God is the ruler of the nations. Ruler of the nations. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. See, God is the maker of diversity. 
God made every person, every color, every race, every language, and all things are headed to that end. Revelation 5, there will be people from every tribe, tongue, language, nation, right? And God made all of them for his glory, and we get to enjoy that. And he didn't just make them, he goes on to say, having determined um, and allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So God has placed us where he places us. He's made us, um, he's placed us where we need to be for his glory, Uh, From the beaches to the mountain, God owns all of it. And fourthly, then, he tells them why God has placed us. He tells them that God's knowable. Why has God placed us, made us, and put us in all different places? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps find him, uh, perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Now, don't say he's the unknown God. You can know him, right? That's what Paul is saying. He's knowable. But look at what he says. He says, perhaps you can feel your way toward him. That's implying, I think, the doctrine of sin. Here's why I think that. That word for feel your way toward him, uh, it's the same word used. You guys remember uh, Homer's Odyssey? All right, you're tracking with me. So Greek, Greek writing. And in that, there's this uh, part where Odysseus is, uh, and his guys get, get trapped by a cyclops. And in the story... People are like, ah, Homer's Odyssey. Um, right, there's the Cyclops, and the Cyclops is going to eat them all. And so he rolls this huge stone in front of the door, and, and they convince him to go to sleep. So he's, he's snoozing on the floor, and they, uh, they get like a poker and then like cram it in his eye. And, and I know, gruesome for a Sunday morning, right? Um, they're like, why did we bring this guy in? Uh, so, yeah, so, so he's got the Cyclops, and they, they do that, take him out there. And, he's, and what it says is, is that he's groping around, feeling for them all through the night. Same word in that story as what we have here. Perhaps we can feel around in our blindness looking for God. See, it points to to our sin. Sin has blinded us. We don't see God rightly. We can't reach him without God in his grace, opening our eyes without him um, helping us to see. Apart from Jesus's blood shed on the cross, friends, we have no hope of finding God. And so Paul is kind of pointing to that idea of the blind of how sin has blinded us, but yet we need a savior. We need Jesus to come to show himself to us, to rescue us. How does that happen? Through hearing the gospel. Right? We hear of what Jesus has done for us, and we respond and we believe, turn from our sin and put our faith in him. And so Paul, he's on a roll here, right? I'm loving it. Um, fifthly, he continues preaching his sermon. The fifth thing he says is that God is the father of humanity. He goes on to quote some of their own secular poets. So this guy is even, um, he's heard, he knows of uh, kind of their writers. He's been watching YouTube, right? He's been watching, he's familiar with the internet machine and how to use it. And he's Googled and he's found out about their culture and that there are some poets. Now, what he quotes from, and this may be surprising to us, is actually are referring to Zeus, what he's quoting. So when he says, in him we live and move and have our being, that was a quote from poetry about Zeus, where it says, for we are indeed his offering, that was his offspring, that was about Zeus, and yet Paul is commandeering this, redeeming it, and making it about the one true God. Now, I feel good about this, because then when I bring up like movie references, that's okay, right? Paul does that um, in his sermon here. He's bringing up stuff from the culture, redeeming it, and, uh, and, and, and saying, no, this can, we, can take, we can take a truth over here and help us to understand who God is. Because truth, um, truth is found in all kinds of places, right? 
We can find truth in all kinds of places, um, but we run it through the, uh, through, the, through the screen and the worldview of, of, uh, of God's word. And so he's borrowing this, tells them, God is the maker. We, in him we move and live and have our being. We feel, choose, rationalize, think, and live forever with him through Jesus. And so you're his offspring. And so that's, that's really striking where these guys are. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So, so listen, guys. I think he's telling we don't just live by our own imaginations. We can't make up who God is. We need to, to understand who God is from his word, through, not through imagination, but revelation, right? And, and I think we use our imaginations as we think about the truth of God. I'm not saying we don't use our imaginations, but he's shown himself to us through his creation, through humanity, through his word. We don't have to speculate or imagine what he's like. He's revealed himself. And so, so before Paul gets to Jesus, and I'm going to wrap this thing up in a minute, before Paul gets to Jesus, just two quick things about sharing the gospel, I think, in our culture and in our setting, what we can glean from this. The first is uh, that, that Paul gives kind of a comprehensive presentation of the storyline of the Bible. I think that's really important. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. He doesn't just start with God loves you. I think there was a time in our culture we could start there. We can't here. You've got to give kind of hooks to hang everything on. Well, why did Jesus come? Because God made everything, and yet we broke everything. That's why we need a Savior, right? Where is everything going to? It's going toward redemption, that God's going to make all things new. Well, why, do, why does he need to make all things new? Because we broke everything. He made it good, and we broke it, right? So this gives us hooks to hang things on. It gives hooks to the culture around us to hang things on, to understand that the worldview that we have as believers, rather than just saying, God loves you, um, so I think that's the first thing he does that's really helpful. The second thing that he does that's really helpful is that he knows his culture. Oh, by the way, Vaughn Roberts' book, um, God's Big Picture, is really, it's a helpful little book just on how thinking through the whole storyline of the Bible and connect it in that way. So that's really helpful. The second thing he does is that he knows the culture. He quotes their poets. He knows their stories, right? And so um, he, he's aware of cultural trends and movements, and that's helpful in order to be effective. Paul's quoting poets, talking about Zeus, reworking it, redeeming it. And we can do that kind of thing too. We can, you know, um, you can see themes of redemption in all kinds of movies. Good grief, don't even get me started, right? It's all over the place that we can find these things of why is that there? Why do we think that's important and good? Because God's made us that way. It's his story, right? That he's redeeming things. There is a hero. There is a rescuer that's coming. So those are the things we do. Mike Cosper writes really well about this in his book, The Stories We Tell. So that's another good book, um, just talking about that. All right, wrapping it up, going to Jesus, all right? Um, Paul then uh, talks about how God is both judge and rescuer. He says in verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Now, it doesn't mean that God doesn't care about sin. It just means that he was being patient in that time. Right? He wasn't bringing immediate judgment as our sins deserve. He was being patient, right? So that's a good thing. Just like today, if you are here and you have not received the forgiveness and grace of God, friend, that's the patience of God. Every one of us deserve God's judgment. And yet in his patience, right, he's allowing us to hear the gospel. He's giving us time. He's, he's allowing us to respond. Um, and so that, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So God was overlooking those things. But now, look what he says. He commands all people everywhere to repent, all people, everywhere, whether you've heard of him or not, right? All people everywhere to repent 
Everyone must bow the knee to Jesus. That's what we're called to do as Christians, just like Paul, to take this message. Oh, there is salvation found. There is hope. We're not left alone. There's a God who made us that even though we broke this world, there's redemption in him, and he will make us new one day. We take this message to a lost and dying world. All people everywhere must repent. Oh, that would, our hearts would break for the idolatry around us that we would take this message to people around us who need to hear it. And this sounds judgmental of us. I know it does, right? When you tell other people, hey, you're lost and dead in your sin, that's not a fun message to hear. And yet that's who we are apart from Christ. That's who we are. Guys, it's not based on what we think. It's about what God has said in his word. Why do we need to believe in Jesus? Why, does all, why do all people need to repent? Verse 31, because he is fixed today on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Look, we don't know when he's going to come, but one thing that we do know is that he will come. He will come again. And on the one hand, Jesus will make all things right. On the other hand, he will judge all those who do not believe in him. He will come, and what will he do? What, what, what do we know? He will judge. And how will he judge? In absolute righteousness. He's going to judge in perfect righteousness, it says. And that really is actually good news, because don't we want justice? Don't we want all things made right? And on the one hand, he's going to execute perfect justice on all those who refuse to bow to him, to give him, all right, to give him half a peace sign, and, uh, and who want nothing to do with him, who want to live their 